Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And welcome to Lost in Science Summer Series for another week. My name is Claire and this week on the show I actually have two scientists coming in to talk all about their ecological research and the sorts of things that are happening for young emerging researchers at the Victorian Biodiversity Conference. Also this week I'm going to give Chris's story uh, from earlier last year about the cat fox of Corsica, another bull. So if you didn't hear it last year, stay tuned because if you didn't know about the cat fox, which I didn't at the time, Chris is going to tell us all about it. Is it folklore or is it science? Hmm. And what can science tell us? Well, stay tuned for that. On with the show. So the Victorian Biodiversity Conference is happening in Melbourne this week and will showcase the exceptional work of postgraduate students and early career researchers around Victoria. Now, lucky for us this week, we have two of these postgraduate researchers here to talk about their research and what will be happening at the conference. So Ali Nance, PhD researcher from Monash University and researcher Rachel Nalia from the University of Melbourne. Welcome to Lost in Science, to the both of you. Thanks Thank so you. much. First of all, let's start from the start. What is your research? What is it all about? Give us the pitch. All right. So I like to think of my research as a love triangle. Oh. <laughs> so um, reason being is my study species is the heath mouse. It's endangered. And I want to know about the influence that fire and resources has and what's the stronger relationship with the heath mouse, so hence the love triangle. Hence the love triangle. Yes. <laughs> and Ali, how about you? Well, mine's not quite as sexy as a love triangle, <laughs> but um, I sort of research inhabited island conservation. So, yeah, I get to focus on one specific island, which is Norfolk Island. And oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful spot. And um, I'm looking at the five endemic bushbirds that live there, looking at basically their nesting habits and what causes nest failure and then how we can sort of ameliorate those threats. Um, so how, how we can remove those threats yeah. from the environment. Yeah, by first finding out about them. And you're studying an island, you're studying Norfolk Island yeah. for, I imagine, a number of reasons. But, I mean, islands for biologists and ecologists are pretty mm. sort of um, special, important places. You can figure out a lot of different things on an island. Mm, exactly. And I think what's special about inhabited islands is it's just a whole other kettle of fish because you have to think about the environment but you also have to think about the social aspect what's good for the environment and what's good for the human community as well in a nutshell so we've got islands and love triangles with heath, <laughs> heath mice heath, yes heath mice yeah heath. F- fantastic <laughs> a specific species of heath mouse so yeah that is the that species, is the species yes. name okay yeah. there's only one type of heath mouse well, in, yeah in so i researched the ones in the eastern part of australia 
but there's also the western part of Australia where the heath mouse occur as well. And both of those are considered to be two different subspecies. Right, okay. Yeah. So how did the heath mouse go over summer? How Has its habitat been affected by the fires? Generally, down where my study area is, which is in the southwestern part of Victoria, it's been okay. Um, there has been fires that have gone through in the study area, but it's not anything as crazy as it was down at, you know, Mallacoota and Gippsland and that area. There was one fire that took about, I think it was 800 hectares, and it did knock out two of my sites that I previously um, trapped up, but I'm not sure what the influence was there. Yeah, and so so when you're looking at um, the love triangle relationship with, between heath mice, fire and resources, um, why is it important to look at those three things? Super important because land managers like to manage different species in the area, you know, with plan burns and things like that. And you can use fire as an easy tool. For example, I use the measure time since fire, which is a time that a habitat was last burnt. Right, yeah. It's a great management tool that, you know, fire managers can use, but it's not always, you know, the most effective and realistic approach because species don't always respond to time alone they can respond to other things and that's where the resources part comes in like the regeneration process could be different with different plant species could be different in different areas because of weather conditions whole lot of factors that could influence it rather than just time so it's good to have that other aspect as well Now, I love hearing from field ecologists what they do in the field. I find, you know, they're always the best dinner party stories. (laughs) So, and especially I imagine on an island, um, tracking, (laughs) you know, going out and looking at bird nests. Mm. Um, Ali, what what are some of your favourite field study stories? Well, let's see. Um, I mean, yeah, a lot of my time spent in the field is just literally tromping through the bush and looking to see if birds are acting a bit dodgy and, you know, just like, okay, I think you've got a nest over there. And um, and then once I find a nest, I have to put up a motion-triggered camera Great. that monitors a nest. And okay. so sometimes that means strapping it onto a bamboo pole and hooking that up, or sometimes I actually have to climb the trees, uh, which is a lot of fun because I think I'm a monkey at heart. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and then I also have to do sort of longer observations where I will just watch a nest for 30 minutes and can be quite meditative or quite frustrating depending on how I'm feeling that day. Um, yeah, there's been lots of spectacular moments. Last field season I was up a tree and I was this was a nest that was built about 14 metres um, off the ground and I was just climbing this really tall pine tree safely, of course. With 14 metres isn't a small number no, of metres. <laughs> but I got the most amazing view. <laughs> it was yeah. I was looking out to the, um, the small little islets that are neighbouring the Norfolk Island and... I think it's just I get these amazing views that nobody else really gets. So, so was it a Norfolk pine that it was you a were? Norfolk pine. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, I'm like pine tree, Norfolk, Norfolk pine, Norfolk pine. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're massive. Yeah, they're yeah. quite big. Really fun to climb. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and how about you, Rachel? Have you had any close encounters? Any mice bites? Oh yeah, lots of mice bites. <laughs> they always try, but that's why I wear gloves. Yep. Yes, got to protect the the hands. Um, but I think, honestly, it's less of the um, mice bites but more of the prickly shrubs that cause <laughs> grief. <laughs> so the heath mouse, given the name, lives in heathlands 
and it's super shrubby and super dense and oh my gosh I I think when I first went out there I trapped in the northern part of my study area and was kind of was beautiful it was low shrubs down to my ankles was trekking through I'm like oh this could be easy you know did a little pilot study before I actually did the research and I was like yeah all right I can do this went into it you know and then trapped in the southern part of the study area and was like oh wow it's like higher than my head and it's so dense I can't see in front of me (laughs) how do heath mice live in this area they're tiny are you out there on your own sometimes so I prefer to have a volunteer that can come join me and hold things and just be my moral support you know (laughs) now let's go to the conference so you guys are both part of the committee that's organizing the victorian biodiversity conference Mm -hmm. so tell us a bit about it what are the what are the aims um and what's going to be happening so basically the vic biocon it's a conference that has been designed for early career researchers and postgraduate students and also designed by or organized by so that's why um, rachel and i are here and it's just an opportunity for graduate students and early career researchers to network and also present their research at an affordable local conference um, because conferences, they can be super expensive to register for, to get to. So this is just, yeah, an opportunity for Victorian researchers really to share their research in, in an affordable way. And apart from the cost, why is it really important for early career researchers at that stage to come together? In my experience, it was just good to know what kind of research is out there because you can get so absorbed in your own project Mm. and you're just like, oh, you know, you know everything about it, but it's not just your project that's important out if it's just Victoria, if it's in Australia, globally. There's so many other projects and there's no project that is the same as yours. So it's just good to know about that. It's also great to meet the people behind those projects and you get a range of different people coming down. So We've got presenters and visitors that come from different unis. So I think it's I think it's twenty seven different organizations. Yep. You are listening to Lost in Science Summer Series and we are talking to Ali Nance, PhD researcher from Monash University, and Rachel Nalia from the University of Melbourne about the Victorian Biodiversity Conference happening this week. So, Ali, at the conference, who are you most looking forward to seeing and what are you most looking forward to hearing about? One of the um, plenary spots that we have is with – we've got Amos Atkinson and Mick Burke and they are fire ecology researchers um, and they're both also Indigenous um, folks. Amos is a proud Bangarang Jara Wawaru Wiradjuri man and McBook is a proud Yorta Yorta Jaja Waring man. And so they're going to be coming in talking to us about just traditional fire management, which I'm super excited about. We have a whole section on fire ecology and yeah, their plenary will be, um, I guess, bookmarking that. So I'm, I'm super keen for that. <laughs> and how can people become involved in the conference? Uh, well, Vic Biocon, um, we have a website. So that's just www.vicbiocon.com. Obviously, short for Victorian Biodiversity Conference. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. So um, each year, our Twitter handle is a little bit different. So it's just Vic Biocon, and then the last two digits of the year. Um, and so we'll be doing live Twitter um, throughout our different sessions. Um, so you can follow us there if you're not attending the conference, and that's a cool way to um, still be part of it and still get to know what kind of research is going on. 
Um, we have this, it's an annual conference, so it happens in February every year. And um, it's been at a Melbourne university for since, since its inception. Uh, so it'll probably be at another Melbourne university next year. Um, so yeah, you can just jump on our website and find out more about it there. Um, we always have call out for abstracts for researchers who are keen to um, yeah, submit a proposal to, to speak. Um, otherwise, yeah, you can just attend and we have yeah, lots of cool um, lunchtime tours and yeah, a lot of fun stuff going on. I imagine, you know, sometimes it's difficult for um, students to make it in from different parts of regional rural, rural Australia or, you know, life circumstances mean it's hard to get there in person. Um, are there any ways uh, that the committee is sort of putting together to make it easier for diverse groups of people? Absolutely. So when you're submitting your abstract to be a speaker at the conference, you can apply for the Breaking Barriers grant. So if, for instance, you live in a rural or remote area and you just don't have enough money to make it to um, Melbourne City, which is very expensive for a lot of folks, then you can apply for financial support. Or if you um, if you have a particular living circumstance that is preventing you from making it. So, for instance, um, have children and um, you're unable to get to the conference because you need to take care of your kids, then we can provide financial support for you. It's been a really challenging start to the year for for our Australian wildlife, um, Indigenous Australians and for all Australians in general with the bushfires. So, you know, hope is something I think that, you know, especially researchers in biodiversity need. Um, mm-hmm. So is, is that one of the themes of the conference? Whenever I come out of these conferences, I feel so much more hopeful. It it can be tough because you can hear about all the all the news that's going on. Even, you know, you can have some stumbling blocks in your own research. But listening to the success stories and what's coming as well. So there's all this novel new research and that's one of the um, sessions as well. There's novel technology research and people will be talking about that. It's just so hopeful that you know even though all of this stuff is happening the research is going on and it's gonna make a difference whether it's now or in the future but yeah but we need this research and we need these conferences to get the word out there and obviously you are both presenting yeah, yeah. Um, can you give us a rundown on what your findings are from your respective Ooh. areas of research okay so going back to that love triangle yeah. Who won over the heath mouse's heart? So time necessarily isn't so important for heath mice because who really takes time as a mouse? Um, but resources are because resources, when I talk about that, that means vegetation. So vegetation is important for foraging. It's important for shelter. And it's also important when, you know, protecting yourself from a predator, such as a fox in that area. Uh, so... You know, we want to shift the mindset of fire managers in just looking at time as a way to manage different species because that's not super important for them. But, you know, the way that fire actually does influence plants and vegetation and how they regrow, how they have different strategies and how plants regrow. So you need to understand that relationship better. And then it's probably how you would address managing for an endangered species. Ali, what will you be presenting at the conference? I will be briefly touching on my um, nests and their successes and failures. I'm doing a five-minute speed talk, so we have 10-minute talks and five-minute speed talks. Um, So, yeah, I'll just be talking about um, 
what were the main causes of failure specifically for my nests. Uh, turns out it was mainly rats. Um, right, okay. Yeah. And rats have been on Norfolk Island for a um, while. Yeah, so there's a couple of different species. There's the Polynesian rat, which or the Pacific rat, which uh, probably came onto the island when um, the Polynesian settlers came along about 800 years ago. Uh, they didn't stay on Norfolk Island, but the rats did. And then the black rat or the ship rat came along um, on a shipwreck. Uh, that wrecked on the reef um, of Norfolk Island. And um, that was, I think, in the 1800s at some point. Um, yeah, so they're the biggest predators of, of my species. But we also have um, a long-tailed cuckoo, which is actually what I call a native predator. So something that all the birds are um, used to, essentially. Um, so it's a vagrant that kind of swings through Norfolk Island on its way back to New Zealand um, on its <laughs> migratory journey. <laughs> And picks up a few chicks for food along the way. Um, so I actually captured the first photographic evidence of long-tailed cuckoos um, taking chicks from the nest, which was pretty cool. And I mean, bad for the chicks, but, the chicks, but, but great for our understanding of exactly. Norfolk Island bird yeah. species. Yeah. And then I also will be showing um, a horrifying um, video footage of a robin... Um, what I called non-parental infanticide. So there was a, a robin who, yeah, actually oh came along, found this nest that it was like, you know what, I want to take this territory, this is mine. So it actually um, ejected these um, two chicks out of a nest. and um, By ejected, I, you mean threw them out Literally the dive-bombed. It was savage. And, yeah, it was, yeah, full on. And are there comparison studies of Norfolk Island with Lord Howe Island and the eradication of rats that's happening over there? Not as yet. There have been a lot of comparisons made with Lord Howe and Norfolk Island because they are ecologically quite similar and because Lord Howe has actually experienced um, a bit more of their sort of small bush bird extinctions than Norfolk Island has. So, yeah, a lot of people are sort of turning to Lord Howe and just seeing how that eradication process is going. But as I sort of alluded to earlier, completing conservation management actions on inhabited islands. It's a very complex scenario and every island will be different because every human community is different. Well, Ali and Rachel, thank you so much for coming in to Lost in Science and talking about your research and also what's going to be happening with the Victorian Biodiversity Conference this week. So for everyone playing at home, um, you can follow along with Vic Biocon. So their Twitter handle is at Vic Biocon or you can follow along on the hashtag, which all the researchers will be tweeting at, which is at VicBioCon20. So make sure you check that out on Twitter. Um, so thank you again. Thanks for having us. Yes, we are listening to Lost in Science. We're talking about the cat fox. This is a special request the, to talk about the discovery of the mysterious mythical cat fox of Corsica. Uh, when you say mythical, does that mean people would have heard of it before? I've never heard of such a thing. Well, if you such lived in Corsica, you would have heard of it. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Now, this, is, this is the thing. <laughs> Supposedly, it is some sort of kind of almost semi-folkloric 
creature. Although, we'll, we'll get into that. I'm not sure so about is that. So is it like a werewolf? Is it a cat that turns into a fox? Or is it a fox that turns into a cat? Yeah, does it have magic associated with it? Or is it just sort of like... A caddish looking fox. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Step right back. I, look, I, like, I appreciate how you jump straight to magic, but um, let's just look at what the actual story is here. Okay? okay. Let's go from the beginning. So this is a discovery that was announced in June 2019. Um, I don't know how I missed this. It was all over the internet, apparently, this cat fox. But um, the news was that researchers from France's National Hunting and Wildlife Office, that is the Office Nationale de la Chasse et la Faune Sauvage. I am learning French, but not very well. Um, <laughs> they, oui. Oui, yeah. <laughs> they believe that they've identified a new species on the Mediterranean island of Corsica. Now, this, this creature was known to locals as the... Oh, I'm not even going to pronounce it. Um, attempt this. Well, I have to go to attempt it. It's a Jatu Volpe, which translates as cat fox. Okay. Um, and it is said to attack the udders of, of sheep and goats at night time. Right. And so little was known about this mysterious cat fox until 2008 when one got trapped overnight in a chicken coop. And suddenly, oh. yeah. Corsica's been settled for a really long time by people and they've only just caught one this year or a couple of years ago. Yeah. yeah Maybe well, they were protecting the cat fox. Possibly. Mm. Okay, so... Yeah, there was a report basically. It like there hasn't been, this discovery hasn't really been published in any um, in any uh, journals. Uh, it's just reports in the news from the um, the Office National de la Chasse de la Faune Sauvage or the OCFS ONCFS, and um, basically saying that it is this mythical creature. However, there have been references to it in other kind of publications. Looking back, just that the the kind of the it's been based. On previously on like some skins or skulls or this kind of stuff and trying to work out what the animal is on very little evidence. So this is, a, yeah, the first time they've actually caught one and documented it properly. So after this, they started looking for the cat fox. After this first encounter in the chicken coop, they went looking for the cat fox. They put out some, um, some wooden sticks um, that with a scent on them to attract the cat foxes and the idea being that they would rub up against them. Oh and yeah. So, so what 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 scents did they put on them? Cows, uh, sheep udder scent, maybe possibly. <laughs> um, but they got some they got some hair that could analyze for DNA as a result of that. And then um, in 2016, they actually managed to capture their first cat fox. Right. So they did the DNA analysis before they caught the cat fox. The, the, yeah, the original cat fox. Yes. Oh, okay, and found that it wasn't a cat or a fox. It is. It is a cat. It's definitely oh. a cat. In fact, oh. if you see pictures oh, of it, when right. they caught this cat, it looks like a large cat. Um, <laughs> it is about 90 centimetres long, um, okay. which is a bit bigger than your, your normal domestic cat. Um, it's got sort of wide tip to tail. set ears. Your tip to tail. Uh, thank you. Short whiskers. It's got long teeth. A bit more like a dog's than a cat. So you can see some confusion there. But it has got a ginger coat and a big fluffy tail with four black rings and a black tip. So oh. it's kind of, I think, the colour and the tail looks a bit like a fox. And also it's kind of predatory behaviour. It looks a bit like a fox. But, yeah, it does look a lot like a cat. And it's not <laughs> unlikely to be some sort of hybrid because foxes and cats aren't very closely related. No. So they're both in the order carnivora. They're, they're, all, they're yeah. all carnivores, but they're very distantly related. Yeah. So yeah. The, the, um, the, the foxes are in the caniformia, which is the dog-shaped creatures. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and the cat, that, that includes things like um, dogs, obviously, also bears, weasels, and seals. 
Right. Um, and they diverged from the other carnivores about 42 million years ago. So the Filiformias, which um, is where the cats are, that's got cats, also hyenas, um, civets, binturungs, uh, and mongooses. Oh, right, mongoose. Not mongoose. Mongoose live in that. Um... I don't know whether it's mongooses or mongoose. I tried looking that up and it was inconclusive. Oh, come on. Let's go with mongoose. Okay, mongoose. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, Snoop Dogg says mongooses, so I think we'll go with that. Yes, yes. (laughs) We'll agree to disagree. Me and Snoop. <laughs> you and Snoop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, it's unlikely to be a, a hybrid. So, it's, right. yeah, I would say it's a cat. Um, from appearance, sorry, uh, morphology, if you want to get technical. Yeah, uh-huh. it doesn't mean to be a cat. But also the DNA, um, they've had a look at that. It seems to be more related to the African forest cat, which is oh. Felis libica, than it is to the European wildcat, which is Felis sylvestris. So it's not it's not just a, a feral cat; it's an actual breed, or an actual species of cat. It's a different species. Well, this of is cat. and this is why actually capturing it was so important, or getting DNA was so important, because people previous references there had been a few. There had been like some attempted to classify it about ninety years ago, um, and gave it a different species name. They call it Felis rei, um, but more recent. Articles before this latest kind of announcement did seem to think that it was a feral domestic cat. Right. Uh, in fact, you go to the Wikipedia page; it still says species name Felis catus, which is domestic mm. cat species. And the theory was, I think, that the Romans brought it over or something like that, and had gone feral. Hmm. So that was kind of what the theory had been. But now they've actually done tests on it; they think it's more related to this yet yeah, to the African wild cat, which is quite different to the domestic cat. Um. So, yeah, they have since they've seen 16 cats, they've captured and tagged 12 of them to find out their range. They can range as much over 3,000 hectares, um, fairly wide range of altitude as well, because Corsica is quite hilly and very rugged terrain, which kind of explains why they haven't been known officially to science, even though they're in like the middle of the Mediterranean, basically. Um, yeah, and the, the researchers think that it could have been on Corsica for as long as six and a half thousand years. Wow. Which have been like since the second wave of humans arriving on the island. So there, it is a long time. Um, yeah. But there's still a lot to learn, clearly. They still haven't exactly figured out how to classify it. I'm sure all the, the feline taxonomists are up, you know, all in excitement, in lather if you will, about how they're going to classify it. Is it going to be a new species, Felis rei? Is it going to be Felis libica rei, a subspecies? I don't know. I'm excited to find out. But, um, yeah, look, it is uh, It is definitely a cat, is what we can say. We yeah. do know. And maybe instead of cat fox, we can call it fox cat. Not a bad idea. And that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science Summer Series this week. Thank you so much for listening. And a big thank you to our guests, Ali Nance and Rachel Nalia. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in contact with us, we would love to hear from you. You can... Yeah, drop us a line on email at lostinsight at gmr.com. You can find us on Twitter. Uh, our handle is at lostinscience1. You can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. 
or you can just tune in again next week when, yes, that's right, Stu, Chris and Claire will get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.